Hey there, you're listening to the Water and Music Podcast, where we unpack the fine prints behind big ideas at the intersection of music and tech, featuring a curated slate of innovators, leaders, artists, and thinkers from across the music business. I'm your host, Sherry Hu. Today's guest is Kieran Gandhi, who's a drummer and artist performing under the name Madam Gandhi. In my opinion, she's one of the most badass artists working out there today, based on the sheer multidimensionality of her work across music, activism, and public speaking. As a super quick summary, she was formerly a touring drummer for the likes of MIA, Fevery Corporation, and Kalani, and also graduated with an MBA from Harvard Business School in 2015. That same year, she also ran the entire London Marathon free bleeding, i.e. on her period without a tampon, to combat the global stigma around menstruation. She's had a really impressive and packed schedule every year since, performing her own musical work, as well as speaking around the world about gender equality, feminism, and of course, the power of music and art in pushing forth these messages and visions. She's also advised a handful of music companies like Spotify and STEM, so has a ton of first-hand experience at the intersection of music and tech, which we focus on in this particular episode. In fact, she and I first met when I was doing a research project on music and tech at Harvard Business School back in 2015, and I was immediately struck by her confidence, her thoughtfulness, and her assertiveness, and how she frames her own ideas and opinions. All of that comes out in this conversation. We talk about everything from the importance of having artists in residence, the music tech companies, to the impact of creative automation on artists' careers, to the myth of the gut versus data binary, and last but not least, the importance of international tech trends in terms of how they shape music culture, and therefore how artists market their music. I should also mention that this was recorded a few months ago, so I mentioned things like going to India this August, which obviously as of publishing this episode already happened. I tried to make the questions as evergreen as possible, and if you look into the full transcript for this podcast, the hyperlinks show how there actually are a lot of connections between the topics Kieran and I discuss and more recent events in the music, tech, and entertainment landscape. So without further ado, hope you enjoy this interview. here with Kieran Gandhi. Kieran, thank you so much for joining. Hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm good. Good. How have you been? I'm good. Mike test one, too. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much again. So one thing that I'm really excited and interested in talking to you about, and I think will be like a theme of this episode in particular, is the role that artists play in driving narratives around music and tech. And this is something that I've seen as actually like a really big gap. So just as like a very small microcosm of the world, I've been going to a bunch of music conferences where everything from the future of streaming to VR and AR to live music, like all sectors of music are covered. Almost two years ago, I did this analysis of like who was speaking at those conferences and artists accounted only for around 6% of them. And so that was from like back in October, 2017, Based on my kind of anecdotal experience, I don't think that number has really gone up beyond 10%. And also, if you look at like articles being written, this is something that I'm like trying to be a lot more mindful of in my own articles too. just 
including artists' perspectives in articles, even about topics that might be considered a little dry or might be considered just like only an industry-facing issue because, you know, artists are the reason that the industry exists because of the music that they make. So just to start off with that, I, I would love to get your perspective on why you think that gap might exist now in terms of artists often being left out in these types of discussions about music and tech. I think one of the reasons that artists get left out um, from music and tech is sort of the old school music industry paradigm, whereby uh, the folks on the business side and now the folks on the tech side who control the money uh, actually prefer to operate from that information asymmetry. You know, it may not be, uh, I don't think anyone's ever getting together in a meeting and saying, let's exclude all the artists. It never looks like that. But it certainly does benefit the folks uh, who are trying to make money for them to sort of feel like they're the only ones who know how to make the money and to prevent that information from being accessible to, to all people. I think if artists were more in control of their own business, you know, making art, making music, performing, uh, selling, selling their music, we would be in a really different industry. At least for me, I try my best to be so aware of what the payouts are, how to collect royalties, how to negotiate for live show performances, how to understand what other folks in my same artist peer category uh, are making so that when I am partnering with different people, because we're not saying go out and do it alone, but when I'm partnering with different people, I'm coming from an empowered place of knowledge. And I think part of my desire to go to these conferences has been just that, so that I can hear what's happening in these mainstream conversations and then feel like I could be the artist who would never be exploited. Now, for artists who are listening to the conversation, you know, to be in these conferences, it's expensive to go there and to buy a ticket. So one way I tackled that problem was to say, I really want to go to these conferences, but I can't afford it. So what if I contribute to it? How can I contribute to it? Mm -hmm. And so I used to just email, cold email people or look at the folks who are curating panels and maybe see if there was a panel with only three people instead of four and say, hey, you know, do you need a fourth perspective? I'm talking about uh, the future of digital streaming. Well, I used to work at Interscope Records or looking at drum technology, as you and I both know, sensory percussion is coming up in the music tech world. Um, I will reach out to them and say, hey, I used to drum for MIA. Do you all need another drummer to come speak on the panel? And if they would say yes, then that was my entry point into being able to, to be part of the conversation. And then for folks who are listening who might be on the music tech side, you know, it is true that sometimes it's frustrating to have artists in the room. Sometimes when I was working at Interscope, I remember folks on the business side would feel really misunderstood and underappreciated by artists, saying that artists don't understand just how much work is being done for their projects and that they're ungrateful. And for that exact reason, that's why artists should be invited to the conversation just to see how much work uh, is being done on the good side for the music industry. So speaking of like people on the music and tech side, this is like nothing new, but I feel like there are like this ongoing increase in the number of founders who are interested in tech-based solutions for artists to help run their businesses or to help reach new audiences and, and, you know, yeah, like reach and cultivate new fans. That can include Spotify, um, which has been around for a while now, but I'm thinking of companies like STEM, which like recently changed their model to focus more on especially like more established artists in their businesses. Troy Carter's company Q&A is definitely focused on trying to build better business services for independent artists specifically. 
And so given that you you have worked with a lot of these companies and partnered with them, I'm curious to hear what advice you might have for those founders who are trying to build for artists. Like what are some important things to keep in mind? Are there any maybe like myths or misconceptions about what artists might actually need or maybe don't need? That's a great question. I think two of my favorite companies that I enjoyed working with, which are STEM, the company I use to distribute and upload my music to the streaming platforms, as well as Spotify itself, which obviously is one of the biggest uh, music streaming platforms in the world. Those are two companies who had artists in residence programs at their onset. I remember it was 2015. I had graduated Harvard Business School and I had been doing the consulting project for Spotify and was really surprised that they would have folks who were either an official artist in residence or who were former, you know, rock and rollers um, or hip hop talent or talent in the on the music side of the industry as artists who now are coming back in as programmers, as the artist relations people, as the label services people. And I just thought that was so clever. You know, it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. You're having people who have the empathy of being on the other side so they know how to talk to artists instead of being sort of like awkward or corporate or not really knowing how to liaise. And I think it creates empathy. I think it's more fun. I think it makes the artist feel uh, excited and they like they want to take ownership of being part of Spotify or STEM instead of feeling like they're forced to upload their stuff to those services out of uh, industry necessity. Um, you don't want someone using your platform because you've strong-armed the industry so much that people don't have a choice. You want them to use their product because they love it. You know, it's mm-hmm. like people who use Lyft versus Uber use Lyft because they love it. They, they feel a different kind of affinity towards the Lyft brand than they do towards the Uber brand. And it's the same for, for, for people who use Spotify. So do I think it's important to have artists related, like artist folks who work at the actual tech companies? I do. I do think that's necessary, especially as an artist. And I, even now, even though I've worked at tech companies before, even though I've gone to Harvard Business School, when I go have these meetings, like now coming in as someone who's on the artist side, it's almost annoying sometimes the way tech folks are condescending towards the musicians yeah. mm-hmm. who are literally powering their entire platform. It's a, I think it's a bad look. Mm. I think there's a way to explain things and to teach and to be communicating in a way that is uplifting and mutually uh, exchanging value as opposed to oddly condescending to the person you're meeting with. Mm. Or I guess, yeah, just to elaborate on what you mean by that. So like tech platforms assuming that they, like either they know best or if like artists are complaining, kind of you're saying like, oh no, we, you should be grateful. Like we're giving you so much, or I guess like they're giving so much of what they perceive to be value, even if it doesn't align with like what artists are really looking for. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Just to zoom out on that topic. So in your music and just in your whole ethos and who you are, diversity and inclusion and feminism and femininity are all like such important aspects of the music that you're making. And I feel like those issues and how they intersect with technology are coming more and more at the forefront, um, especially in the context of streaming. And especially as companies like Spotify and Apple Music become ever larger in terms of the, the audiences they reach, I think, so I'm just thinking like even a couple of years ago, they were very hesitant about calling themselves gatekeepers 
And now I don't think they're really hesitant about that at all. Or at like, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't really hear like Spotify execs saying, oh, like, no, we're not gatekeepers. We're trying to bypass <laughs> the gatekeepers. Like, no, they're very much like full on editorial curators now. I mean, that's how their whole, you know, whole mm-hmm. page is set up. And then along with that, they have a lot more responsibility in what they present to users. And there have been a lot of pieces written by like writers like Liz Pelly about diversity or lack thereof in their playlisting and, and in their curation. That's just one example of how technology and tech platforms can impact diversity for better or for worse. And so I'm wondering just what you think about where that intersection is going and how maybe you've been using technology to help further the creative vision and the mission that also infuses your work. It's a great question. I, uh, as you know, was lucky to give uh, a couple talks at Spotify and my most recent one was for the Asian Heritage Awareness Month. And that was last month. And what I said to the folks at Spotify was like, listen, I understand the need for the playlisting culture. You know, it's actually cool that they have folks internally. And we also can make our own playlist as tastemakers outside of the platform. Mm-hmm. But the folks who are making the playlist in the platform have the biggest reach and the biggest access. And if the folks who are programming those big, big playlists are kind of under the belief that certain kind of music is quote unquote good or that, you know, what's in the mainstream is the best music that's available, that already is a problematic assumption that will continue to keep folks isolated from ever being heard. It's kind of like if MIA, who now is one of the greatest artists of our time, but if someone hadn't given her a shot, that kind of crazy Sri Lankan percussive music that was her first album, Arular, there's no way it would ever get playlisted mm-hmm. or heard because it would have been such a risk. So I think for me, the biggest thing is just making sure that folks who are playlisting, there is a sort of, there should be some sort of internal anti-biasing process that, you know, basically controls for people's inherent unconscious biases of what they perceive to be good. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, as a musician who's making electronic music, kind of trap music, percussive music, I definitely either sing about love or I sing about feminism and, and sort of where we are today in this battle for gender liberation. And if Spotify playlists me on the women's playlist, I'm grateful, especially when it's like a time that's culturally relevant, like the Women's March, then you're soundtracking for history. But if they're only playlisting you according to the theme of your music and not the music itself, then the message is actually only being told to people who have a feminist inclination to begin mm-hmm. with. And that music mm-hmm. is not infiltrating the more mainstream playlist where I actually really do want my message to live. And the idea is to use the beats and the music and the melodies to captivate my listeners so that then they're hit with the message uh, after the fact. So this is really the... Uh, the, the interesting thing about playlisting and, and sort of what I'm hoping to, to figure out even more. Mm. Yeah, I guess looking beyond playlisting and just looking at the role technology and the internet have played in branding and marketing around an artist. This is like a total like side note, but whenever people ask me for recommendations about which artists uh, on Instagram to follow, I always mention you because <laughs> I feel <laughs> like... Yeah, because I feel like, yeah, the way I use Instagram, not not just as like a promotional tool at all, but just like to really showcase in a really strong and immediate way, like what you're all about and like what your message is, I think is like really good. But also, yeah, of course. And but I'm also thinking like with technology in general, 
it's not just Instagram. There's so many other platforms, other startups that are coming up all the time. Some of, some of whom are directly targeting artists in terms of who they want to work with. Others are just like cool, you know, video platforms or photo platforms. And I have heard a lot of artists just say that they feel very overwhelmed and that there's just like, mm. yeah, there's just so much going on. There's so many potential places to put your music or yourself or your message. And you can't possibly, you know, cast a completely comprehensive net across all those platforms without burning yourself out in some way or like diluting your message in some way. So I'd love to hear from you about like how you, one, are you thinking about just like the scope of those, of that tech that's available? And then two, how are you navigating that and kind of thinking through which platforms will be most effective for you? And I love this question. Yeah. I love this question. I think for me, I always think of like, what am I looking for when I'm trying to like check out other artists and other folks who inspire me? And I think it's a couple of things. I think one is consistency. Like I love just going deep into someone's Instagram who's inspiring me and finding all the videos of them doing their thing, whether it's they're posting music tech videos or whether they're posting tips, uh, whether they're posting their speeches. So for me, I try my best to keep it consistent. Like I try to post either um, recaps from the different speeches that I do uh, and I always caption them so it's accessible and easier to to listen and engage with. Then I'll always post... uh, you know, info from my shows and, and recaps from my shows. And then, of course, I'll post the actual artwork, whether it's for my merchandise or for the new music that's coming out. And um, one thing that's interesting is that I also think that social media and Spotify and all these like text platforms should really just be like a way to expedite and reflect back who you already are. Because in a couple of years, all this stuff, this stuff will evolve onto the next thing. And if you put all your life making your Spotify and your Instagram look popping, like be ready to do that again for something completely different. Yeah, the yeah. consistent thing is that you know how to express yourself. Yeah. That's really the key. And I feel that sometimes I'll have a, I'll like be a fan of someone on Instagram and they're super good at it. They have like thousands of followers and you know, they're always posting stuff. And I'm like, wow, I can't wait to this person. It's so inspiring. Then you meet them and they're completely a different person, <laughs> completely a different yeah. person. They're either like super quiet or they're super in the corner on their phone, which explains why they're super good at Instagram yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, and it's such a bummer. It's like a bummer. It's like, what? Like you are so confident and outgoing on this two-dimensional mm. platform, but in the real world, you're not even like, you're not even looking at me in the eye. Mm. And, uh, and I and and just being on the other side of that made me never want to make that mistake. So I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? As much as I could be doubling down on my Instagram to be able to find more people, to be able to flex on my Instagram numbers, people can tell what's real. I've seen people perform who have terrible live shows yeah. and excellent Instagrams. And I was like, no, for me, I my priority and my choice is to have an excellent live show mm-hmm. and to always be able to communicate and exist in the real world now not to say i don't want to have extraordinary social media presence because it's allowed me to engage with so many more people at a much rapid more rapid rate but i think the value of connecting on that spiritual level is becoming more and more rare so the better you are at it the more special you have something to offer absolutely yeah this is this has been coming up more and more in terms of expectations that are set through instagram or like music on Spotify or streaming other streaming services yeah. versus a live show. And there are a lot of artists who quote unquote stream really well, but then their live shows aren't that good. Right. Like that can 
um, break a career. And, and the other way around, there's still artists building like really amazing and, and sustainable and successful careers the other way around in that like they have amazing live shows and they don't stream that well, but it doesn't matter because people are still, you know, buying tickets and uh, buying tickets to see them in person and supporting them in that way. So yeah, I think more and more artists are like reckoning with that for sure. That's cool. You know what? I think that the win from that statement though, and from that great point is that now more than ever, everyone can find their lane. Like we don't have to be dominating each other to be the one. Like I can be Madame Gandhi, who is the artist who can give a speech and then give a performance. And that's what I do. And and other people can come and do that or they cannot. And I can make a whole career and a living out of doing podcasts and doing speeches and doing performances and you know like trading off somewhere else because my revenue is coming in from doing those things but maybe not doing something else so like that is really powerful that's really i think that's i think the key is to know who you are yeah know who you are ahead of time and go all the way you know folks who are like i'm making ambient music that people are going to study to on (laughs) spotify and i'm going to make bank doing it and can i perform no but i'm not in i have no intention to perform i hate traveling i don't do that you know i don't like so those folks know what it is that they like for me i have a message and people want to hear that message out loud because they want to get inspired or different folks around the world have an audience who they're trying to inspire and so they'll hire me to come and be the graduation speaker come and be the keynote presenter etc etc because they're hiring me to fulfill a task so the more we do that work to look inward and say, what is our intention? What are we here to do? Let's get some clarity. And then we do it. That's really the best way to operate. I love that. I totally agree. This is kind of related to artists like knowing who they are and using technology to serve that purpose. Um, one topic that's been coming up a lot, especially around conversations around AI, is the impact of automation on artists from the perspective of the creative process. So I've, I've written a couple articles um, at this point around startups that are trying to build products around AI facilitated music. I'm like hesitant to use the phrase AI generated music, but essentially like that is a big part of it in terms of mm. developing algorithms that can compose decent, satisfactory music kind of on the fly in these short clips that are royalty free and that users can download maybe to use use in their own um, in their own creative works or like there's one startup called Amper that's more targeting filmmakers um, and videographers who might not be able to afford I guess a traditional sync license or like a, a traditional commission in terms of commissioning a human composer to write like a bespoke a whole bespoke piece for them and mm. there's been understandably mixed reactions from the artist community to this general trend especially when if you look at the companies that are i guess making the most headway in building this tech so uh it's like google facebook sony ibm um understandably the bigger companies with the most resources to invest in developing this tech and so yeah like some artists have expressed fear that they don't have those artist incentives in mind necessarily some companies like google and IBM are working directly with artists, uh, which is better than like leaving them out completely. But yeah, I'm wondering if that's something that's been on your mind at all, especially I, I feel like a lot of people see electronic music as being kind of the lowest hanging target 
for this kind of creative automation, given that so much of the creative process for electronic music is already happening on laptops, using software, using, especially like using software that helps facilitate the creative process without totally replacing it. See, the punishment is in the win. So if you're doing something that's easy and making quick money, it will burn out fast. You know what I mean? So it's like, as long as you know what you're signing up for, because as soon as you do something that's simple that a bunch of other people can do, you're no longer delivering value. And the system corrects for that. So it's like, do it, you know, get that quick cash. It's the same as having a quick job anywhere, you know? Uh, And then once you've done it, either you have to keep evolving and expanding your craft, which is the right thing to do, uh, or you'll become irrelevant and kind of eaten up quick. And I think um, that's the rewarding thing is like you can do that or you can kind of be aware that playing the long game and designing something that no one else can offer and making something that is so uniquely you uh, is how you create value for yourself and offer something that's never been done before. There's just more risk with that. You have to take more time. You have to find a way to sustain yourself while you're developing your art. And then you have to hope that people actually want it. So that's why most folks, um, you know, would rather be the quick producer and make quick beats. And to their credit, you know, if you're making beats, even if it's easy, I would imagine you're getting better and better. So hopefully uh, you're learning how to expand your craft along the way. Mm Speaking on that, this is a topic that's come up a ton in articles I write, but also for this podcast in terms of the pressure to create just a lot of music all the time, where I feel like that also is the paradigm, especially for a lot of rappers in terms of releasing like several mixtapes a year. Mm. There's a pressure, especially in a streaming age, to kind of take the point you're making before about consistency uh, to an extreme, to the point of Mm. like releasing like a single a week. Um, or single a month, which is more manageable. Right. But I think there just is this pressure. I'm wondering if that's, if you ever feel that pressure or if not, like how you kind of push it to the side and focus more on just, you know, making great music and, and doing other things. That's a great question. I think, um, I think for me, I just do it feels fun. I do it feels mm-hmm. fun because if I push stuff out every month and it's not fun, then the quality of the music will be terrible. It would just be forced and awkward. Uh, if I make music from a place of like enthusiasm and excitement and inspiration, then the quality of the music is much more excellent. Mm. So this is the trade-off. I mean, if I'm not getting inspired to make music every second, I just don't. I get inspired to perform, so I go and perform. If I get inspired to give a speech, I go and give a speech. And uh, I think for me, I've always lived in a very multidimensional way. You know, when I was at Harvard Business School, I was touring with MIA. When I was Working at Spotify, I was running the London Marathon free bleeding. Like, my stuff yeah, is all over the yeah, place, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I think for me, I, I've i always just gone where it feels fun and exciting. Um, and those two things are always within the span of my work anyway, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, music and feminism. And that was sort of the talk that I gave at TEDx Brooklyn uh, many years ago. is called Atomic Living, which is this idea of, doing the thing that in that atomic moment of time, that little atom of time feels awesome, feels good because then the quality of each micro moment ends up being excellent quality. Mm. Um, but that's my personal philosophy. You know, that's how I stay happy and healthy and not burnt out. If I'm doing something for somebody else and then it doesn't even react, it would just feel so sad. Yeah. You'll feel like this yeah. bugs. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd rather at least uh, first feel happy no matter what. Um, and then if somebody else also feels 
happy, then it's a win-win. Yeah, that's great. And I think when we first like met in person and we're working together, it was also around the first time that I heard about this concept of atomic living. Mm. It actually like was quite influential on me, like at the time in terms of like learning. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of like learning how to make decisions to trust your, trust your gut. Trust your gut. Which is, yeah. And that's a very uh, tough thing to do in the industry. Even for me, man, like sometimes I'm departing from it a lot and I have to come back to it, which is, the more we see what other people are doing, the more we open up Instagram, the more we dilute our own intuition. And that is the that is the thing that keeps us distracted. That is the thing that keeps us depressed. And that is the thing that keeps us from giving the world what we're supposed to be giving. And uh, it's actually a very Jimmy Iovine thing where he would always say, why do you think they put blinders on a racehorse? They put blinders on a racehorse so that they keep their horse focused in their lane to go straight mm. but if the horse did not have those blinders on their eyes and we're looking left and right as soon as they look left they'll miss a step and they won't make the turns around uh the racetrack and they'll fall so i really subscribe to this ideology and the less i can focus on what other people are doing and the more i can focus just on my own journey and my own joyfulness the better my quality of life and the better of my quality of music mm. yeah totally and yeah something that i was going to bring up that's like also kind of related to what I've been hearing all the time at conferences and less so now. So like when I first started writing about this space, a phrase that I'd hear all the time, not just in music, but like in any business is like gut versus data is how people would express it. Like mm. what is, I know I have so much to say on this. I'm excited. Really? To get you <laughs> yeah. Or it was always like, I guess. Yeah. So in, in like the context of a panel, it would be presented as, like a as a hard binary gut versus data and then by the end of the panel it would be like oh it's a mix of both and then that's like kind of the cliche that keeps like coming up over and over again to the point where I feel like people are like using that phrase less and less now because (laughs) yeah because people are also done fetishizing data and like fetishizing everything being quantified and they're like like data's there isn't super important um, but it's not kind of dictating everything. It it doesn't, it, it only backfires if it starts to dictate every decision that we make, especially in an industry like music. Mm. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, especially as it applies to your own career, like as an independent artist, I'm sure, I mean, like any artist by default um, can potentially be taking in tons of different data streams from anywhere like from like whether from streaming services from social media platforms um live music like the the number of data sources are sources are also increasing and that is also just another source of I guess feeling overwhelmed for artists too so like how are you do you see it as like a gut versus data kind of thing or do you see it as all kind of much more holistically rather than like a binary situation I um I think it's very simple. I think everyone's just going by their gut. And then once they decide in their mind what's the answer, what it is that they want to do, then they use the data to tell that story. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, I think that, 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 that is that is usually what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> right. I think people love to act like they're using all the most data. But then I, I never saw that once. When I was at Interscope Records, I was a data analyst for two years. And most of the time it was like, uh, even though I was reporting as to what's exactly there and I was reporting what my intuition was and what I was seeing 
I definitely think people wouldn't take the numbers that they didn't want to see or hear about, even if they were good in some other direction, they just would ignore them. They would just take the ones that are telling the story that they're trying to tell. Yeah. Just like as kind of an anecdote, I heard this recently in the context of Netflix and because Netflix has a reputation for being super data driven just in terms of not only what content they're recommending, but the content that they're making, Mm. Um, like the buzz Mm. around, things like House of Cards kind of before it went downhill or like using data to inform storylines for like the original films and TV shows. And I think if you like look at, it's very similarly, it's followed an evolution away from like emphasizing the data. So like execs would used to say, the way we make decisions is 30% got uh, 70% data, like data takes priority. And now it's very much, um, it's like the art comes before the science. That, that's kind of like mm. the rhetoric that they'll say now. Yeah, it's just it's really interesting just like that there's this wider mindset shift and people are embracing that. Like it's data doesn't have to, yeah, data is just a tool to drive forward this creative vision that you have that's like difficult to quantify at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. So last question that I had before the last segment is related to the relationship between technology and culture on an international level. And this is something that I've recently started to grapple with just from a journalist perspective. So for instance, I'm planning on going to India at the end of August this year, which I'm super wow. excited about. Yeah. My, so I am going there in part for a conference there called All About Music, but I do want to spend at least two weeks there just to explore the country and meet people there because I've never been before. And part of why... I wanted to go it was not just because of that conference, but it was because I had already written a couple of articles about the music streaming landscape in India and realized that like there really was not that much more value I could add without being there on the ground. And I, I like, yeah. I re- like so much of, I've had the same experience when um, like writing about Japan, writing about China, just like this, this feeling that I have. Um, and I, I don't know if you share this, but, like I can't understand how people adopt technology without understanding like the the culture around them, um, and how that impacts the way that they use technology. Hmm. Um, I bring up those examples because I know that you, um, you also travel a lot as an artist. I think I saw you. You were also recently in India. You're recently in Indonesia yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 And so something that I think that you like do really well that I think the music industry as a whole could do better is break out of kind of the Western centric bubble in terms of talking about um, music and tech and talking about the music industry in particular and like kind of looking globally at how people are um, consuming music, not just consuming music in like a commercial sense, but also like how they relate to it. And I don't know if there's like from these travels, if there's anything that comes up for you as ways that people internationally are, uh, relating to music in a way that like maybe surprised you or that's like impacting how you're approaching either your creative process or how you're like sharing your music as an artist? Uh, yeah, I think the fact that most people internationally all do have cell phones. And what I'm really seeing is that folks use YouTube because they yeah, just can use the internet and yeah. they all have uh, data. So most people have international phones. They may not be iPhones. They'll be the cheaper local sort of version of the smartphone that's available. And then the data plans that are sold to folks are usually on a little um, 
SIM card and then you can buy data per month. And people use that for their WhatsApp and definitely for YouTube. And so that got me thinking like, wow, for most of my songs, I don't have a music video. It's just the Mm. album artwork uploaded. And I was like, since when did we decide that it's either like a really high budget music video or it's just kind of like pretty much the album artwork, or at least that's what I had in my head. So I've been thinking about some sort of like intermediary uh, visual that could be played. I, I know people have lyric videos or people, you know, can make music videos super cheap, but I don't think I would want, like if I was going to make a music video, I want to go all the way. Like I want it to be amazing. Totally. But if I'm, yeah. I'm, I was trying to think like, what is kind of an innovative happy in between that I could be making for my YouTube that is makes watching or hearing the music fun, but it's not all the way expensive as a music video. So that was sort of an interesting thing I noticed. Yeah, that's a really, uh, it's a really good question. Yeah, some examples that might come to mind. One artist that I also cite a lot in terms of an artist who uses like Instagram and visuals in generally in a really good way is Tiara Wack. Definitely. And like what she did around Whack World. Yeah, in terms of kind of seeding different clips from the longer video that ended up on YouTube. So that's kind of a different situation and that it's kind of across multiple platforms. But also, so one uh, feature that I think is super interesting that I, I don't know if it'll expand beyond Spotify, but they have a canvas feature where like artists can totally. upload. Yeah, like looping video. Yeah, that's a great example of what yeah. I'm talking about. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be cool to have that feature expand beyond Spotify or to have that like, yeah, integrated with YouTube somehow, given, given that a platform like YouTube still has, I think, pro- yeah, probably like much more global reach than Spotify does right now in terms of like, the number of countries where it's active. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's all the questions I had before the last segment. I don't know if, if any like news came to mind for you. I think the main trend that's just so interesting is that all of us are making content based on the constrictions of tech. Like I'm literally mm -hmm. hiring video teams to cut me video recaps of my shows, but I'm telling them I need a one minute recap for Instagram. And then I need like a three minute uh, recap for Facebook and YouTube. And Mm -hmm. now I'm telling my team, I actually need like a two minute Instagram, ITV, IGTV vertical video with captioning that's a whole other format uh to tell the story and it's just really crazy how we in the artist community react to what's happening in tech and they do have a lot of leadership responsibility that way and that's why sometimes i'm almost flabbergasted at how relatively speaking basic spotify and youtube are like as a creative person you can't control or in anything it all looks so janky we all look the same it's <laughs> exactly, just like the yeah. joke is the joke is on us yeah. you know it's so yeah. silly and uh i think the platforms have gotten a little bit better about being able to be accessible when the artist feels oh something is spelled wrong or actually that's not my artist page but it says that it is or that's not my song but it's looped in there or whatever uh they'll fix things like like that that are like uh information errors but if you hit somebody up and you're like, oh, I want to like code my YouTube to make it all yellow and, you know, skinned with some Madame Gandhi fonts and things like that, you're not, you're not going to hear back from them. Um, mm. That's not a priority. So I think it's just interesting. All of us are really uh, creating things only based on, on, on the platforms. And moreover, for Spotify, whether your song, as we know, is a minute or is 10 minutes, you get the same rate of yeah. the royalty. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. 
uh, how long your music is. So we're all incentivized actually to make super short music that people just want to play on repeat and double the amount that we're making yeah. rather than making, you know, long forms of art, if that might be your, your thing. So I, I tend not in, you know, to keep entirely all these tech uh, limitations in mind, but at the same time, uh, it would be foolish for me to get inspired and upload a 10 minute track instead of just dividing them into sub songs and uploading mm. them as mini songs, knowing that that will uh, quadruple the income. So these are just, I guess, some of the trends that I'm seeing. We are all actively reacting and creating according to what we know the tech limitations are. Yeah, uh, that's so fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up. And yeah, and I think I'm thinking of an artist like Lil Nas X uh, just released his EP and he also is like super active on Twitter and has very openly said, um, oh, I like made this one track Panini shorter uh, just so <laughs> I can like make more, uh, generate more royalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, totally go. same with like Tierra Whack and Whack yeah. World, which like it creatively is like a super interesting project, but also there's like a reason that she made every song one minute and like could do right. that and still, ge- like you know, um, generate the same, if not more like, yeah, royalties just based on the number of streams that that leads to. Yeah. So the piece of news that I had in mind, it, it, so it is multiple pieces of news under the same trend. Um, I've noticed so much more buzz around the role of lyrics in streaming and social media. So uh, like Instagram recently announced a new feature that allows select lyrics to be displayed in real time in Instagram stories along with like music stickers or kind of in like a music sticker wow. style format. Yeah. Um, and they, they integrated with music's match. I think is how you say it. Um, which is surprising to me. I thought they would integrate maybe with a site like genius, but they went with um, one of their competitors to do that. So there's that Deezer recently announced like a lyric integration feature with Instagram also. Um, and I don't think they're like real time displays, but I think you can kind of share a song you're listening to from Deezer to Instagram and um, include like a snippet of lyrics that are just like displayed in the story. Mm. Um, This is not related to social media, but Google and Genius got into kind of a conflict because Genius claimed that Google was scraping Genius's website and, you know, posting lyrics as a search results without getting the proper licensing or paying rights holders properly. Um, And I think that got resolved and I don't think Google was in the wrong, but there's kind of a debate around that. But anyway, I just like, uh, had never really seen so, uh, so many, I guess, announcements or features around lyrics coming out oh. at the same time. Yeah. In just a span of a couple of weeks and with a pure, I guess, commercial business hat on thinking about like, what's the next opportunity to pay, especially like songwriters and publishers properly in a world of streaming and social media, like lyrics are definitely, um, there's definitely still like such an open opportunity uh, to like monetize those more effectively, mostly in digital format. Like it is already happening in physical format. Like I believe like you're, you're also doing this yourself like with merch. Um, that's definitely a popular mm-hmm. avenue for lyrics. But I think mm-hmm. yeah, there's still an open opportunity to use sites like uh, Instagram to give more context, kind of like fan user generated context around lyrics, but also um, compensate people more and I guess more efficiently does it make sense yeah I I mean I just love hearing all this update I love lyrics so much I love putting my lyrics um 
everywhere. My lyrics are the whole thing for my project. I'm talking about gender liberation. I'm taking ideas from my speech and putting it into the body of work. So to hear that lyrics are becoming more of a priority makes me personally really happy. Um, I also mm. find it interesting, though, because I feel like most of the time when I talk to people about uh, but what about the misogyny in this song? Or how can you play this music? Like, it's yeah, so yeah. violently misogynist. But then people's response is always like, oh, oh, I'm not listening to the music, like the lyrics. I'm just listening to the beat. And so I find it interesting, you know, in that day-to-day experience where people say they don't care about the lyrics to hear that this trend is actually suggesting the opposite. So mm. I wonder if that will make people more aware of uh, what's actually being said and I don't know. I think the normaliz- the normalization of misogyny, even for women and female identifying folks and femmes, is is such a problem. We're we're at this point. We just accept it. We're like, oh, I guess that's just the way the world works. It's like, no, we have to shut it down. We have yeah. to stop yeah. taking it, and we have to say, listen, like, you need to think about something else if you want to talk about us like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I don't think it's totally out of the question that yeah people will use these new features as. Uh, maybe as like a more activist tool to say, hey, like why why are these lyrics here? Or yeah, um, yeah, like yeah. Oh, like did you know? Yes, you were like turning up to this beat, but um, actually, this person was like insulting you or offending you, like in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I don't know if there are any last like thoughts you wanted to share, or if there's anything you're working on that you wanted to promote. Yeah, I would say my album Visions comes out in October, which I'm very excited uh, to share. Super Thank you. Yeah. Um, so anyone who's listening, go and listen to my record. <laughs> Let me know what you think. Very uh, percussive. It's very international. This one has sounds from uh, Brazil, from Nigeria, and definitely from India. It's uh, very introspective, which is why I called it Visions. The idea is to look inward in order to look outward. Mm. Um, It's about critiquing things uh, that don't necessarily work for all of us. And it's uh, it's also got some love energy in there. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Super excited about that. And uh, yeah, thank you again for talking. So many interesting points. Thank you. I'm so proud of you and your podcast. So, so exciting. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to episode 12 of the Water and Music podcast. If you like what you heard, I would really, really appreciate you leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts as it helps with discoverability. And if you're interested in keeping up with future episodes, you can either follow this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever other platform ever choosing. Or you can also subscribe to my email newsletter of the same name, Water and Music, which comes out every Thursday at around noon Eastern time. In the newsletter, I alternate recaps of the latest podcast episodes with a more long-form, exclusive essay about the current state of music and tech that comes out every other Thursday. If that sounds interesting to you, you can subscribe to the newsletter by visiting bit.ly slash waterandmusic. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash waterandmusic, all spelled out and all in lowercase. Thank you so, so much again to Kieran for the great conversation and to you all for listening. Until next time.